Okay, so picture seventh grade you. Seventh grade, heard some groans, heard some grimaces. I had some more hair back then. Knowing what you know about life right now, think of the important life lessons that you know. What would you hope to say to your seventh grade self? What do you hope you'd learn? If you had the chance to go back and tell them, what would you tell them? What do you wish that you knew then that you know now? We're at the end of our four-week series here at Veritas on relationships. We've gone through singleness, dating. Last week, Kyle talked about sex, and tonight we are finishing it off with marriage. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed them thus far, and I've gotten some wisdom on how to do relationships well, whether you're single, dating, maybe engaged, maybe married, maybe not, uh, but whoever you are, wherever you are, whether you've been here through all of them or this is your first time tonight, we hope that it's been helpful. I do want to say this too. I speak for our entire staff team to say how thankful we were for the questions that you guys submitted online, just about um, questions about some of these issues. I'll say this. I can't say everything tonight there is to say about marriage, nor should I. And I probably won't be able to answer all the questions that you submitted about marriage. I'll be able to answer some. But here's what you should do. A little teaser. You should go to our relationship panel it's before the first Tuesday after Veritas. Okay, it's going to be uh, November 27th, 6.30 p.m. I hope that's right, at Stotler 3 in Memorial Union. Alex Moore is going to facilitate a conversation. Alex Gray is going to be there. Kyle and his wife, Noel Richter, will be there. I will be there along with my wife, Polly. Come and ask us any question you want. I think throughout this week, we'll be able to, you'll be able to submit some other questions on social media. So there's more questions tonight that you have. Any other questions that have arisen throughout the series, you should do that. It's going to be great, so you should come, invite a friend, invite somebody maybe normally doesn't come to Veritas. We would love for any and everybody to be there. Speaking of my wife, Polly, this is her behind me as she's being proposed to by me nine and a half years ago. We were out in L.A. I secretly hired a photographer to capture the moment. That is not okay in any other scenario except for this one. Uh, it's a great story. If you want more details, I can tell you later. Uh, we, uh, here's another one of us on our wedding day almost nine years ago. She's shining and radiant and angel. I'm tolerable. Uh, I've got a little bit of hair. I'm still holding on for dear life back then. <laughs> Clearly I've come to terms with what's happened to me. Anyway, like I said, showing those pictures, laugh it up people, that's fine. It's coming one day for some of you. Show those pictures because they, they obviously relate to what we're talking about tonight, which is marriage. Now, as I was looking back through all those, through my wedding pictures, I had an interesting thought, and it was related to that thought at the beginning. If I could go back now almost 15 years and sit in that seat that you're in right now, and I did, I had class here in Waters, if I could go back to where you are, to my undergrad days here, and what would I tell myself about marriage? What are the things that I wish I would have known about marriage back then? that I know now and that I'm really learning. Now, just like you guys had and I have, we all have things to learn as a seventh grader. I think all of us here tonight have some things to learn about marriage, whoever we are and wherever we are. And so my hope for, for us tonight, whether you're single, dating, engaged, married, is that these lessons would be on your mind and would inform your marriage in the future, if that's what God has for you. Uh, but that also these lessons would transform and change and sanctify your relationships today, tomorrow, uh, the next semester, and in, and in years to come. So let's get to it. Four things 
that I wish I knew about marriage. Now, the first one, I wish I knew that marriage wasn't about me. See, when I was in college, sitting in those seats where you are, I, I knew about marriage, and all that I knew is that I wanted it to be about me, and I wanted to find that person who I was going to spend the rest of my life with. I was on the hunt for them. Um, and to be honest, God never really entered the picture, at least consciously, in my mind. Never thought, hey, maybe I should ask God if that's in the cards, uh, who should I marry? It was just never a part of it. it. He didn't really have anything to do with it because marriage for me was all about my search for the other person. You see, but I was, I was wrong because marriage isn't about me. It's about God. See, marriage was intentionally and purposely created by him, not by groups of people, the hunter-gatherers, thousands of years ago. It's not like they got together and said, hey, what do you think? Marriage sound good? Okay, great. No, it was intentionally and purposely created by God. In fact, we find the first wedding ceremony and honeymoon in Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2, starting in verse 22, then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so we enter in a marriage. We're participating in an institution that's been designed by God. You see, marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Now, I recognize some of you might not agree with that. I recognize that's not a very popular view in our culture today. But you know what? As Christians, uh, we need to stand by this view of the Bible because it's in the Bible, and the Bible's trustworthy all of it, not just some of it, but all of it. And this is what the Bible says about marriage. Not only do we just hold this view just because the Bible says it, but gosh, Jesus holds to this view of marriage. It's Matthew chapter 19. To, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, haven't you read, Pharisees, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He is quoting Genesis 2 there. He knows his Bible, his Old Testament has united to his man and wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So in marriage, the man and the woman are no longer two, but they're one. They're, they're unified. They're united. And this is related to God's purpose for marriage. You see, marriage isn't just about the other person, just about the man and the woman. It's something about God. It shows us something about who God is. I love how Ben Stewart, he said this in his uh, relationship book that we sold, Single, Dating, Engaged, Married, he says this, the unity of diversity of male and female is meant to be a testimony to the world about God. It's showing people the nature of how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wants to unite with his people, the church. As we step into this marriage bond, we become a living picture of God's wonderful union with his people. Our unity tells a bigger story. See, marriage isn't about me. Again, I recognize, I know what I'm saying. This goes against a lot of our thinking today, especially in our culture. But what I want to do, let's put just a little more flesh on this kind of abstract concept of how marriage between a man and a woman actually displays the character of God. Again, I'm indebted to Ben Stewart on a lot of thoughts in this section. If you've read the book or the chapters, you're going to be totally bored because I pretty much stole everything he said, so thank you. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, 
The Apostle Paul is writing in this section about marriage. This is another uh, classic marriage passage from the Bible. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Let's focus on the most fun word in that entire passage, submit. Isn't that a fun word? Well, I mean, what, what do you think? What do you guys want to do today? How about, how about this? How about we go submit? Right? Nobody loves this idea of submitting. Nobody wants to do that, myself included. Now, jokes aside, a lot of women, I want to acknowledge this, a lot of women have been harmed by domineering men as a result of this verse and a result of this concept of submission. And many people, Christians included, have used this verse, and maybe even still to this day, use this verse to say that all women should submit to all men. Hear me loud and clear, that is wrong. That is unbiblical. And what we need instead is a clear view of what this word uh, submit means, especially in the context of marriage. And so I want to say just a few things about this. For starters, submission does not mean subjugation. There is no verse in the Bible that says, husbands, you need to get that woman, that wife, to submit as if she's somehow this wild horse that needs to be broken in a field or something. No, not at all. The power to bring another person into submission belongs to God and to God alone. Now, now in this passage in Ephesians 5, the verb submit, it's used in what's called the middle voice. And this is really important, so don't miss it. When, what the middle voice means is that a person does the action of the verb to themselves. And so in this instance, what this means, what this verse is saying is that the wife submits herself. It's a decision that the woman makes on her own in the context of a marriage. She willingly chooses to submit to her husband. Next, the, the command for wives to submit to their husbands, this does not at all diminish any sort of value or dignity in the marriage. The way God set marriage up, you have a man and a woman, both created in God's image, both with equal value and dignity. But as we see, and as we're going to continue to see, they have different roles within that. Just because they have different roles does not at all mean that any one person is less valuable than the other. Lastly, here's what submission does mean. It simply means to order yourself under another person. So for a wife to submit to her husband, it means that she recognizes and responds to her husband's leadership. It's the acknowledgement that somebody has been given the responsibility, in the case of marriage, the husband, that somebody else must come under the wife. When I say responsibility, I mean the headship, the main leadership. Now, I say this next point with great humility, but ladies, if you think, still think that submitting is somehow below your dignity, now think about this point, that Jesus himself submitted to the plans of the Father. Remember that last night, if you know the story in Luke 22, that Jesus is in the garden. He's about to be arrested, and he is praying on his hands and knees desperately. Some say bleeding to the shedding or stressed to the point and sweating blood, right? What does he ask for? He says, God, take the plan away. Is there a different way? Can we do something else, please? How does he end his prayer? but not my will, but your will. 
Jesus submitted himself to the plans of his father. In in the New Testament book of Philippians in chapter 2, we learn that Jesus didn't consider his position as God to be used for his own advantage. Right? He's God. Think of the power and the glory and the majesty he has. What does he choose to do with that power? He becomes a human. He becomes a servant. And he willingly submitted himself to the father's plan. And so, women, I hope you hear that when God commands wives to submit to their husbands, he's not asking them to do anything that he himself has not already done. For what it's worth, maybe, it's, maybe you don't care about this, but for what it's worth in my own marriage, been married for nine, nine plus years, this conversation, this topic has not come up once in the sense of, oh, let me pull the submission card. Sorry, you're my wife, you need to submit. It hasn't come up, nor do I want it to to be quite honest. This is not a normal day, normal conversation that's part of our day. It's in the back of both of our minds, sure, and both of us uh, are on board with this concept and this conviction, but it's, it's not an everyday thing, and, and it's not like I laud it in front of one another. Let's go to the guys. Ephesians 5 tells us that husbands in marriage, they're in the position of leadership. And so what are husbands supposed to do with that position of leadership? Well, let's read. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands are called to love their wives. Now that word, uh, in the original Greek, it's called agape. It's not, there's other words for love. There's eros, which is erotic love. There's storge, which is familial uh, affection. But agape has a wide, wide range of meanings. This has the sense of a binding and a covenantal love. This is a love that over and over is used to describe God's love for his people. It's a love that commits to others' good and swears and promises to never let go no matter what. You see, Yes, absolutely, love's a feeling. It's a good feeling, but it comes and goes. Love is also, and especially in this verse, love is a verb. If you've been dating somebody for a few months or a few years, then you know, at least least I hope you do, that romantic relationships, the feelings in romantic relationships, they come and go. They ebb and they flow. That's natural and that's normal. And the question that you have to ask yourself if you're in one of those relationships is, what do you do when they go? What do you do when things aren't going well and you've, you, you, you've lost that magic, that spark, that chemistry, so to speak? They come and go in dating. And let me tell you what, they come and go in marriage. Uh, there's a graph behind me. It, it, it's titled Marital Satisfaction to the Family Life Cycle. That's about the most boring uh, title you could give a graph. But it was put out there in the Journal of Family and Marriage in the 1970s, and, and I think, despite its name, that it stands the test of time. So on the bottom, you've got the family stage there. So you see marriage, preschool children, adolescent children, last child leaves home. Vertically, it says the percentage of couples reporting that things between them are going well all the time. If anybody puts 100%, they're both completely delusional, should probably break up. But notice it starts right there at about 35%. Notice the trend. Highest right when you get married, but then things change a little once you have children. We can talk more about that. This is in the parenting talk. Uh, but if you have kids in here, then you know. You maybe say amen. Uh, but then, thank you. Uh, 
But once they grow up, you'll notice, and they grow a little bit more independent, those feelings of satisfaction, they start to increase just a little more. Now, let the record show, my wife and I, we have a seven-year-old, five-year-old, and two-year-old. We're right there at the bottom. So if y'all could pray for us, (laughs) we're trying. We're trying. Agape love lasts the curve. It makes it through the curve. You see, in God's plan, a husband's love for his wife is meant to be present and active, enduring. This love is a verb, and it's meant to put on display, front and center, for wives to see, for other people to see, what Jesus did for his people on that cross. Look back at at verse 25 for a second. It says, husbands, love your wives. How? What's the comparison? Well, here's how. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Guys, before you get married, you need to read this and study this and pray about this because careful what you wish for. You know what Jesus did on a cross? He bled and he died. This is what men, husbands, are called to do for their wives. Serve and sacrifice for the long haul. If marriage is in the cards for you, this is what we should be willing to do for our future wives, no strings attached. And moreover, this love, this service needs to be done in a way, not that just it's easy for you and natural for you, but in a way that she recognizes and that's natural for her, makes her feel refreshed and loved and cared for, which should not look like this. No problem. Uh, we'll get them a little bit later. I'm just going to the streets there for a little bit. Gary, come on. I don't want to do them later. Let's just do them now. Take 15 minutes. Oh, honey, I am so exhausted. I just honestly want to relax for a little bit. If I could just sit here, let my food digest, and just try to enjoy the quiet for a little bit. Get some. Get some. Get some. That's what happens. And we will you know, we can clean the dishes tomorrow. Gary, you know, I don't like waking up to a dirty kitchen. Who cares? I care, all right? I care. I busted my ass all day cleaning this house and then cooking that meal, and I worked today. It would be nice if you said thank you and helped me with the dishes. Fine. I'll help you do the damn dishes. Oh, come on. You know what? No. That's, see, that's not what I want. You just said that you want me to help you do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. Why would I want to do dishes? Why? See, that's my whole point. Why would I want to do dishes? That's what, it's, that's what agape love is not. All right, let's put a little more positive spin on this, though, shall we? I'm going to probably embarrass my good friend Kyle back there, but I want to sing his praises for a minute. They have, he and his wife know all, they have three kids, Lily, Lucy, and Jack. And Jack turned three last week. And I don't think it's an understatement to say that it's incredible that his son is still with us because when Noelle was 27 weeks pregnant, she had to go on bed rest. Uh, if she... Um, she couldn't do anything other than get up to go to the bathroom, essentially. And if she did so, that would have put their son Jack's health in serious, serious risk. And so Kyle had to step up to the plate. He, and he did. Uh, th- this was his, just a day in the life uh, of, uh, for, for three months for him with two toddlers, mind you. So he'd be the first one out of bed to make breakfast for everybody. Then he'd play with Lily and Lucy. And then he'd get them dressed and kind of ready for the day. Then he'd have to get himself ready. Uh, and, and so then he'd get ready to go to work. And so grandparents would come over during the day so Kyle could work, but then he gets home, 
and the circus continues, right? Got to get dinner cooked, either say hey to the people delivering meals, make meals, get the kids to eat the meals, get Noel to eat a meal, right? And so then you'd, you, he'd have to do then the bedtime and the bath time routine and read the same story over and over and over and over and have the right blankies, change the diapers, all of that. Then he has to go hang out with his wife, has to be a good husband, has to talk about the stresses and the anxieties of life and what she's going through and how they're worried about their son. He's got that stuff going on. 84 straight days. He's so embarrassed. Here's the point. The point is not to say that Kyle is the great guy or the perfect husband because he's not. His word's not mine, although I would, yep, sure. Here's the point. That's a picture of agape love, that time and energy and effort spent serving his wife and his family. It's just a small, a powerful a picture of the effort that Jesus put forth 2,000 years ago on that cross for us and the effort that he continually puts forth for us today and the effort that he will continually put forth for the days or weeks or months or thousands of years until he returns home. That's what happens in a marriage. Marriage isn't about me. It's about God, and it's meant to show a picture of who God is and what he's up to in the world. Second thing I wish I knew about marriage. I wish that I knew that marriage would be one of the hardest things that I would ever do. When I was in your shoes and in undergrad, all I could think about was how great marriage would be. I mean, think, I mean I'm mean, i just thinking, right? You're spending so much time with the person you found, your soulmate, the love of your life. You're going to do life together. We're going to work together. We're going to live together. And hello, we get to have sex together. Yes, that sounds good. I mean, come on, how hard could marriage be, right? Little did I know. Some of you, may have heard about this scandal of sorts. Ashley Madison was a website for people to have secret affairs. It was advertised as, and this is a quote here, the premier website for married individuals seeking affairs. All you had to do was you had to log in, had to create a profile, set up at a time and a place to cheat on your spouse. It was totally anonymous, totally safe, totally secure, until it got hacked. Back in 2015, some people, they broke into the system and they published publicly on the internet all 40 million users, 40 million users on Ashley Madison. And they found out, I mean, this wrecked people's lives, people from all walks of life, government officials, married couples, pastors even. Why? Why would somebody join a site like this? You think they were standing at the altar saying their vows, maybe in a year, in a decade, to think, you know what, I'm going to go register to this site. No, why would they do that? What, what happened? You know, I don't know all the reasons, uh, but I bet you that if you and I could sit down with every single one of those 40 million people, I bet a consistent answer of most, if not all, of the people, they would say that they didn't know how hard marriage was. They didn't know how hard marriage was. I bet when they realized that, they wanted an escape. One of, somebody asked, it was a great question on one of the Instagram survey, what are the hardest parts of marriage no one talks about? I had a couple points. I had to cut them. Come to the panel. We can talk more about this. Here's the main one I want to talk about. Marriage is hard because of sin. Marriage is hard because of sin. So one result of Adam and Eve's sin, if you know the story, Genesis 2, everything's great. Here's creation. Adam and Eve are presented with a choice. They are tempted and they sin. And that decision has affected every single person from that point on. We are downstream from that decision. And one of the effects 
is brokenness in relationships with one another, brokenness in marriages, sin in marriage. The person you are going to marry is a sinner if you get married. You are a sinner, and you will never stop being one. You see, since because sin can never be contained, sin can never be isolated, it's always going to spread. There's always going to be collateral damage. And whenever you get married, if you get married, the person who sees that and is affected the most by it, guess what? That's your spouse. So what's this mean? On the one hand, for marriage, on the one hand, it's going to mean that the other person's going to let you down. In 2010, I think a few years ago, started going to seminary. So I was working for Veritas full-time. Seminary I went to was in St. Louis. would have to drive back and forth. It was kind of an intense time for us, but to be quite honest, I loved it. I loved being in seminary. I was learning so much about Jesus and the Bible and history and all that. I wish I could go back. And what I wanted most when I walked through that door when I came home was I wanted to talk to my wife about what was going on. I mean, we learned about all sorts of things. The Trinity, it's amazing, mind-blowing, and I'm an external processor, so I want to talk and ask questions, and what do you think? Have you heard this? And I kind of was like, hey, I know this. Do you know this? Let me teach you a little bit, right? However, at the very same time, my wife and I just had our first child, Adeline, and she was a really tough kid. She was not sleeping well. Uh, She had acid reflux, and my wife is not wired to stay home. Some moms are, and that's fine. Others aren't, that's fine too. She was not. And so while I'm at the seminary, she's at home surviving. The last thing she wanted to do when I came home was talk about the Trinity. Trinity, cool. Awesome, why don't you talk about it with your daughter? You take her somewhere, I will sleep. That's what she wanted. And to be honest, it was really, really, really hard for me. Now, that said, I got permission to share the story. This is a dynamic that we've talked about and processed together and moved on from. But in the moment, I was disappointed. I was bitter, to be quite honest. I couldn't understand why she didn't want to ask more about what I was learning. And at that particular time, I felt like Polly let me down. For every married person in the world, if they're honest with themselves, they've got a moment like that. And if you get married, there's going to come a time, maybe six months in, maybe six years in, when you have a moment like that. That other person's going to disappoint you and let you down. It's coming. So that's why marriage is hard. That person's going to let you down. But guess what? You're going to let that person down too. God's great wisdom and humor, to be quite honest. Uh, my wife, her highest, I guess, love language, is that, is that what it is? Is acts of service. That's her number one thing. Everybody knows, yeah? Acts of service. You know what my last one is? Acts of service. Isn't that funny? Yeah, you can laugh about it. It's okay. I'm still working on it. Right, so what this means, she just wants to tinker with our house all the time. She wants to rearrange furniture. She wants to hang things. She wants to paint. She grew up in a house where this was commonplace, happened all the time. Me, my room still looks the same as it did when I was five. I got the weird striped wallpaper with the shoes on top. So I get married, and here my wife all wants to do all these things. I'm going, what? What? That's fine. What are you doing? I come home. We got rollers out and dust cloths down. I'm like, come on, man. But because I'm a husband, I need to love my wife. I'm going to agape love. I'm going to love her. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to die to myself, and that's fine. This literally happened two days ago. I come home. Well, a couple, <laughs> a week ago, I got a text from my mother-in-law. It says, hey, I want to get this for Polly. This is going to be awesome. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, number one, what is that? And my wife, she's never going to use this. And what it's going to mean is I'm going to have to be the one to put this up because fine, I'll do it. So two days ago, I get home, take my son to wrestling practice, come home, it's late, he's crazy, he goes to bed, 
I'm at 1% battery life right now, kind of Vince Vaughn-ish in the clip, and we start putting this thing, what is it? Yeah, it's a cookbook holder. It's up, let the record show. Start putting this thing together. Here's what happens. As I'm looking underneath the cabinet to check where the screws need to go, I smoke my head on that mixer. That's number one. Yeah, this, it's headshots when you're bald, it's a little bit harder, right? So, so headshot number one. Then I've got to bend my neck underneath. I'm getting old. and wrench my neck. That's number two. And then I'm putting the screws in. I strip one of the screws. So I take it. I literally just throw it across the room because I'm so frustrated. At this point, Polly has gotten quieter and quieter and quieter. And finally, I'm huffy. Uh, and, and I look over, and she's literally gone. She's gone. Now, I'm laughing about it now. We're laughing about it now. But in the moment, she was pissed, and I was pissed. And I kind of slamming things around and put the stupid thing in. We were quiet for an hour. And about an hour later, I went to her and said, hey, are you ready to talk about what happened? And she's, she starts talking but starts tearing up and crying. And my wife's not a crier, and so when that happens, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I blew it. And, you know, she told me how much it hurts her, and she still doesn't know why I do this. This is nine years in. She doesn't know why I just, it's so hard for me to do these acts of service. And she says it crushes her when I perform an act of service with a nasty heart. I mean, just knife to the heart. I let her down. I sinned against her. Now, again, we've talked about it, asked for forgiveness, got permission to share that story. It's fine. But, you know, unfortunately, that cookbook holder, however long it's used and in our home, that's going to be a reminder to us and to me of the fact that I let my wife down. There's an article by a guy, I'm going to say this name wrong, so forgive me, Alan de Botton, a uh, French uh, philosopher, I think, he summed it up in his, art, Botten, excuse me, sums it up and he wrote an article in the New York Times opinion article called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. How's that for an article? He sums it up. He sums it up this way. We need to swap the romantic view of marriage, romantic view for a tragic and at points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. All add sin against us to that. And we will, without any malice, I'd also add, sometimes with intentional malice, do the same to them. There can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness in marriage. I recognize that I'm popping a bubble right now about marriage, and I'm doing so unapologetically. Because on the one hand, marriage is good, and I had to cut that point, by the way, so I want to be on on record as saying I'm pro-marriage. And yet, the way that our culture talks about marriage, we've talked about this before, you know it, what's in the air that we breathe, the water that we are swimming is marriage is where you find the one, capital O, and it's bliss, and the curtain ends, and it's all great, and it's not. If you go into marriage with that expectation, you are going to be highly disappointed. So consider this a much-needed warning. That's why I'm popping bubbles right now. Third thing I wish I knew about marriage I wish that I knew my choices back then when I was in college. I wish I knew that they would affect my marriage now. This is uh, addressing the question somebody asked. Great question. What can we do now as college students to start preparing for marriage if it's what God has for us? Great question. Now, when I was in college, I heard that statement. I mean, we all kind of know that abstractly, right? Our choices today affect our future tomorrow. It's kind of like overused, blah, blah, great. Okay, let's just keep going. But what I needed and what I want to do now is I needed that abstract concept to be brought down to real life just a little bit. Tell me, how exactly do my choices, will they affect my future marriage? I'm just going to kind of go, go through a few here. Not all by any means, but a few. Let's talk about social media. 
social media, uh, I have social media. I don't want to just be the guy who uh, craps all over it all the time, but here's a real negative effect of social media. It affects our ability to relate with real life flesh and blood people. When you are married, you're going to have to relate with a real life, real life person. See, it's easy to use Instagram and Facebook and what other apps as an escape from problems. Problems out there, they'll be there when I get back. I'm just going to go here. I'm going to do my thing here. And that shapes and forms us and teaches us about how to deal with stuff out there. Significant conversations with a spouse that are meant to be had face-to-face. If you keep this pattern going, you'll start punting on the face-to-face convos. You'll start having them over text, over email. You'll start being passive-aggressive. You won't address the issues you need to have face-to-face. So be mindful of social media uses. Be aware of how it's affecting you. Pornography. I'm not going to belabor this point too much because Kyle talked about it last week, uh, except to say that pornography usage, it's going to have long-term effects on how you relate to your future spouse. It teaches you, men especially, that sex is something meant to satisfy you and your wife happens to be the person who meets that need for you. Not just men, sometimes women, but mainly especially. It teaches us what sex and marriage is like. And using a person for your satisfaction in no matter what relationship and no matter what context is always wrong, is always sinful because that's the quintessential definition of being selfish. You see, God designed sex in marriage between a man and a woman as a place where the goal of mutual satisfaction and enjoyment and unity is met, not the taking of one another for my own pleasure. The decisions that you're going to make in your current romantic relationships, they're going to affect your marriage tomorrow. If, if, if you are experimenting sexually with a boyfriend or girlfriend right now or someone, you can't guarantee they're going to be your spouse. And what you're going to do, if and when you get a spouse, is you're going to have to disclose. You should disclose and be honest about your past sexual history. If that person's not your spouse, that person's going to have to tell their future spouse what's going on right now. It's going to affect future marriages. It's going to bring pain and hurt. Decisions you make spiritually today are going to affect your marriage tomorrow. If you are, to quote Alex Moore, if you are milky, about your relationship with Jesus and your spiritual life, then probably it's going to continue on into marriage. Men, whoever you date, whether it's your spouse or not, try to get the other person to love Jesus more than you. Women, whoever you date, whether your spouse or not, try to get them to love Jesus more than you. Encourage them, spur them on, point them away from you first and foremost. Independently fight against sin in your own life. Get an accountability partner that is not your boyfriend or girlfriend, who's someone of the same gender. Prioritize your relationship with Jesus regardless of what a significant other does. Don't depend on them or rely on them to tell you what to read or or to study. Figure that out on your own. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you can't ask them what they're learning, can't ask them for their opinions. And of course, that also doesn't mean that you can't study or read something together. Of course, you should, but make sure that you are making your faith your own. Are you dragging someone that you're romantically interested in to Veritas, to the crossing? You're asking them and they're reading their Bible. They're like, no, I don't really care. That's not going to change in marriage. You're not going to change that person. That person's not going to change you. Now, if, um, if, if any of you said in your head or your heart right now, I'm too busy to prioritize my relationship with Jesus. I'm too busy to read my Bible. I'm too busy uh, to pray. Hear me when I say that's not a legit excuse. 
I know it sounds harsh, but I say it because you need to hear it. If you are telling yourself, I'll prioritize my relationship with Jesus after the semester or after college or when I get married or making an excuse for that person that you're dating or thinking about dating, that is delusional because here's the deal. If you think you are busy now, just wait. Life only gets busier. The stakes only get higher because soon you're going to graduate and get a full-time job. And then you actually might want to get married. And if you get married, you're going to have to figure out where you're going to live. Are you going to stay in the city? Are you going to have a house? Then what do you do about a family? Are you going to have a kid? Let's throw a kid into that mix. How about multiple kids? On and on it goes. Don't hear what I'm not saying. All those things are great. Jobs are great. Marriage is great. Kids are great. They come with the territory of being married and having a family. I'm there. I want it no other way. But don't kid yourself. The thought, I'll wait until later to prioritize my relationship with Jesus, it's delusional. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Start figuring that out right now. Other general patterns could go on and on. What do you spend your money on? How much time do you spend being entertained digesting, consuming entertainment, video games, Netflix, all that. What's that time like? What's the breakdown? That's going to impact your marriage. I know guys that they were in seminary. They would come to class next morning and say, man, I was so tired. I stayed up until 4 a.m. playing Nintendo Mario Kart. Like, what, what time did you start? 8 p.m. You're in seminary, bro. That's not supposed to happen. It's true. These are grown men with Wives. I love Mario Kart. I'll beat all of you at it. That's fine. You come on over. But you get my point. Here's another positive thing you can do starting right now if you're in a relationship. Have a consistent date night and leave your phones in the car. Sit and talk. Right, Polly and I, we had a date night every week when we were dating and engaged. Now that we're married, we do it about months, once a month. But what we do now is at the beginning of every semester before all the stuff calendar fills up, we plan those date nights because we prioritize that. Last thing, make a commitment to be in a community. Some of the most life-giving times Polly and I have had as a married couple is hanging out with friends, hanging out with people in our small group, praying with and for one another, discussing things, learning things together, being there for one another, praying for one another with hard times hit because those times are coming. You're going to need to be in a community. The choices that I made in college, again, I wish I knew the full extent of the choices that I made in college, how they would affect my marriage. Fourth and final thing that I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew that Jesus, like really knew that Jesus was more satisfying than marriage. I really wish I knew that. So I became a Christian in college. And when I became a Christian, I was on fire for Jesus. I was reading my Bible. I went to any and every Bible study I could, singing all the Christian, uh, listening all the worship Christian songs, worship Christian songs, Christian worship songs that I could. I worked at a Christian camp. The way that I think about it is I came out of the starting block at a dead sprint, and it was great. Uh, but as time went on, I realized, hopefully you realized, that the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's 26 plus miles, and if you sprint You'll make it about a quarter mile, then you're going to die. So I realized, look, I need to tone it back a little bit. That blazing fire turned into kind of a slow burn, and that's fine. That's natural. That actually is, is healthy and should happen. But then I'm running this race, and all of a sudden I look over, and, hey, there's this, uh, this cute little girl here uh, running the race too, actually running a little faster than me, so I had to pick up my game. And, and we started running together. It was great. This is not my wife, by the way. Um, and we were both involved in the same Christian community. We were both learning and growing and fighting to love Jesus. But pretty soon, rather than keep my eyes ahead on the finish line, I started looking over to her more and more. 
And she was doing the same thing. We began taking our eyes off what was most important, off that finish line. And so what that looked like in our relationship, I started wondering and worrying, what did she think? Instead of first and foremost, what does Jesus think? I started doing things and prioritizing my schedules and planning my day around, what am I going to see her? What is she going to think? She became the center of my life, and I became the center of her life, and we were one another's functional saviors. And I started to buy into the lie that a relationship with her was going to be more satisfying than my relationship with Jesus. To use that race analogy, it's like we stopped off at like mile two at the water break, water stand, and we just hung out, just had a nice little date, drinking water forgetting about the race, walking away from the race. That's what was happening in our relationship. We were content to just focus on one another. We forgot about the race. And it worked all the way up until it didn't. You see, we became each other's functional saviors, and marriage is not about me, it's not about her. We were making promises that we could not keep. We were writing checks emotionally that we could not cash. I started disappointing her. She started expecting too much for me and wanting me to make promises that I knew I couldn't keep. We began isolating ourselves. Now, we would have said we were Christians, and we were, and that's fine. We were talking the talk, but we weren't consistently walking the walk. The relationship became about us instead of Jesus, and by God's grace, I realized that, and and I ended it. I broke up with her for it. That happened in my a dating relationship, maybe it's happened or is happening in your dating relationships, but I guarantee you it can happen in marriage. It has happened in marriage. It does happen in marriage. People can forget that marriage isn't about them. People can start to believe that marriage is the best thing. Not a good thing, which it is. They can start to believe that it's the best thing, but it's not. It's good. It's not the best on Jesus' day, there's a group, of, a group called the Sadducees, and the Gospel of Matthew tells us about an interaction they had with Jesus. Kind of a weird conversation. You see, these Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus and by asking him a question about the resurrection. So they present this scenario. So they say, okay, so let's say this woman marries a man with seven brothers, and let's say the first husband, her, her husband dies. Well, then she has to marry the second brother, and that day... The brother, if, if, if there was a widow and she was vulnerable and didn't have a marriage, you would kind of step up to the plate and care for her and marry her so you could provide her uh, safety and shelter, all of that. So what happens if the second brother dies? Well, then you marry the third brother. On and on this goes till about the seventh brother. And then the Sadducees finally get to their question, Matthew 22, verse 28. Now then, Jesus, at the resurrection, which is another way to say at the end of time, Whose wife will this woman be of the seven brothers, since all the brothers were married to her? Who's she going to be married to, Jesus? Here's what Jesus says. You're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, at the end of time, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. What? Did you catch that? What that means is that there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. Some of you might be thinking right now, no marriage in heaven, no sex in heaven. That sounds more like hell to me, right? I get it. But but I hope you see the point. This means that the good gift of marriage is a signpost pointing us to something greater. 
Remember, marriage is that institution created by God that highlights and displays the love that God has for his people. Marriage is good, but there's something better, something that I wished I knew more, and I'm continuing to fight to believe now, is that Jesus is more satisfying than marriage. As a music team comes up, I've said a lot about what I wished I knew in marriage. Here's the one thing I do know. When I'm satisfied in Jesus, not perfectly, but wanting to, more and more, two steps forward, one step back, when I'm satisfied in Jesus, when I'm prioritizing my relationship with Jesus, when I care about loving Jesus more and living for his kingdom together with other people more, then you know what? You know what happens in my marriage? I actually find that I have a greater desire and a greater ability to love and to serve my wife, love her when she doesn't love me back. Longer, deeper, more faithfully. Why? Because I have someone better. You see, Jesus is more important than my wife. Jesus is more important than any spouse you may find. He's able to refresh and restore and heal and bring peace and forgiveness and comfort in a way that another person, another human being cannot. About this, what would the world be like in five years, let's say 10 years, if every single one of you here, if and when you were married, committed to loving your loving Jesus more than your spouse? What would the world understand about God and his purpose for the world? Thanks to the way that men loved their wives with agape love, or thanks to the way that women submitted themselves to their husband's leadership. You see, if marriage is in the cards for you, think about the impact it might make in the world. You see, marriage isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult, and yet there's a purpose for it. So no matter who you are, no matter what God has for your future, let's look to Jesus for our satisfaction instead of another person, and let's say amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you teach us about marriage. Thank you that it's your idea. Thank you that you have a good purpose for it. Lord, I pray uh, for each and every one of us in this room, number one, that we would give ourselves over to your plan. Maybe marriage is in the cards for us tonight. Maybe it's not. If it's not, I pray you would help us, help them to trust in you through that seat that singleness in whatever form is a good gift. And if we are married, if that is what you have for us, Lord, help us and help them to be faithful. Strive for you. Look to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.